0: Hi, Dom. Really excited to have you on the show. You're a founder. You're tackling the talent shortage in Southeast Asia, which is the hottest topic for the past five years and probably will be for the next five years in Southeast Asia. So excited to have you on the show to hear your
1: journey and insights. Thanks, Jeremy. Pleasure to be here. So, Dom, who are you? Hey, Jeremy, how are you? As you say, I'm Dom Clonin. I'm the founder and CEO of Techbridge Market. We are a Singapore-headquartered recruitment services business, essentially, that operates across most regions in APAC and the Middle East.
0: Awesome. Thanks for sharing so much about how you got to where you are today. Just tell us a little bit more, why Tech Talent? Is this something you're really passionate about? How did you get your domain expertise in this?
1: So, uh, look, I think uh, with a lot of my career, it was somewhat circumstantial, right? It didn't come, I guess, from a long-seated passion for the recruitment industry or indeed the talent or the candidate market. I've seen somewhat of an opportunist when it comes to to businesses. I Trying to identify gaps in markets where things can maybe be improved. And I, I saw that in recruitment services. And then, you know, of course, I've been in this market now for four or five years. And like anything, when you spend a huge amount of your time working in it, working on it you develop a passion and and an interest uh, in it? And it's obviously a very dynamic space, especially right now. And seeing the evolution even over the course of the last 18 months under COVID has been really enlightening for me as an entrepreneur. And I found something that we can really help in, I guess. So why
0: is there a technology talent shortage in Southeast Asia? Because everyone's complaining about it.
1: Well, I mean, it's just purely a, a supply and demand issue, right? The demand for tech talent is increasing exponentially. It has been my entire career. I mean, I, I ran pretty traditional businesses earlier on in my career, and the the evolution of those businesses was always around how you could provide, how you could build more technology into, I guess, more traditional, maybe more service orientated business. So, across the entire spectrum, this is not a new trend. Of course, everyone understands that COVID has uh, has rapidly accelerated that reality in certain businesses, web-based businesses, last mile delivery businesses, whatever you may call it, they've been having to exponentially scale the amount of tech talent to meet the, the increased demand. And that talent just isn't there. The universities in, in Southeast Asia, for example, just aren't able to spit out enough talent quickly enough to, to meet the demand. And once you factor in, of course, the restrictions on the movement of labor, where you would typically see people coming in from to Singapore, for example, from, from India, that has obviously been shut down dead. And when you're looking purely at your local candidate pool, it is purely just supply and demand.
0: And so what's the trend of that do you think over the next 10 years? Is it going to get better? or going to get
1: worse? I expect it's going to get significantly better. I mean, look, businesses are innovative organization. They will make changes to their processes. They will make changes to the way they hire to adapt so that they maintain uh, value. They maintain their profitability and shareholder value. So that will always drive innovation. And and I think we're lucky enough here in Singapore in particular to be have a government as well that is very does a lot to facilitate this. And then I think there's a lot of creativity in the in the wider Southeast Asian community about how do we build more funnels of new talent in the tech arena and how do we get them into the market. You know, I receive emails all the time from coding schools in Indonesia and coding schools in Vietnam and these great entrepreneurs that are teaching people to code in, you know, one third of the period of time versus a university degree or a computer engineering degree, because they understand that we've got this talent needs to come into the market more quickly. So on the basis of a helpful government of these great entrepreneurs and businesses having to work it out, I have no doubt it's going to get easier. And hopefully our business is helping in that as well. But it might get worse for a while. I foresee that. But ultimately, it's going to get a lot better.
0: Interesting. I would have thought the other way around. I mean, no, it's fine. I mean, because obviously, I agree with you, COVID should go away and that should help some of the arbitrage and the liquidity across borders of tech talent. So that should get better. I agree that there will be increased demand for tech talent as more and more technology goes out. But what's interesting is you're saying and pitching that the supply will get better as the economy starts to orient towards technology i think that's a fair belief in thesis
1: yeah and, and and to add to that there's the economic component as well you know you look at markets like singapore hong kong for example even markets like the uk that's suffering a huge tech talent shortage right now they're starting to look elsewhere and and covid is kind of helped streamline the process of looking for remote talent and when you look for remote talent you open up uh, candidate pools that you're not previously accessing right so there is that Uh, Untapped demand. Now, that that will ultimately, there won't be enough supply just in that and of itself. But what's happening when these big tech companies are hiring in Vietnam and Indonesia, it's increasing the salaries of tech talent in those markets. We see that's been happening in India for a number of years. It's definitely happening in the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia. and, And that will then, in my mind anyway, attract a lot more school leavers and university graduates from those countries. Into those roles because they are seeing that it pays extremely well versus other options in their market. And I think that as well will really enhance the supply. It will take a few years, but I think it's positive.
0: Yeah, I think for someone who's like based in the Philippines. You know, historically, the only jobs they saw were people that had offshored the operations to the Philippines market. But now they're getting remote job offers from Singapore and from America, actually. And so there's an interesting competition for the best talent, as long as you're willing to work the time zone difference, as well as if you're competent in English. So I agree with you that I think the market signals will help push people there. So what's interesting, of course, is that I think you've seen a lot of, uh, for example, Singaporean companies go remote, obviously Indonesian, Vietnamese companies also going remote. What's interesting is that a lot of these countries have gone remote while also having very little immigration flows, right, because they're not allowing people to move to Indonesia or Singapore and Vietnam. And so to some extent, one thing a bunch of us were discussing was, in the short term, I think it helps for technology talent to really be able to be plugged in very quickly from a country perspective, is actually not so helpful because you're training the next generation of engineers in someone else's country, right? Yes. Versus letting them be able to also migrate to Singapore or Jakarta or you know, somewhere else and bring their brains and their social network and their in-person spending <laughs> to the country. What do you think about that, Dom?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting topic. It's also one that's quite relatively controversial in terms of people have very different opinions on this. But I, I think there is just a certain reality if you are recently, I think it was your guys' Monk's Hill Ventures with, with Glints put out an infographic about what percentage of the engineering workforce the likes of GoJek and Grab and so on are hiring offshore. And it's a, it's a significant proportion. And if you can't find it locally, you have you have no choice. And and actually, I think conversely, if governments after COVID continue to make the, the, the immigration standards harder then that will just perpetuate that reality, right? Like, I think there is a huge number of people around the region who would love to move into Singapore and work in Singapore, right? This is still the hub. This is still where the, the a lot of the brains are, whether the big businesses are the headquarters, they would like to be here. But if that's not feasible, and it's very possible that it won't be, they will, you essentially are, yes, hiring and, and supporting economies that out, outside of yours. And that's just a, an unavoidable rea- a reality, I think. So
0: obviously there's a lot of tension because- Because you have tech talent around, uh, like you said, immigration regulations and the ability for highly desired tech talent to move. How should you think policymakers think about that trade-off?
1: I should imagine it's it's very hard for them to balance that and, and square that circle. In one on one side you have to focus on your, your own economy and how you develop your own sort of manpower equity within your economy. But also you need to be you need to facilitate business. And if you do have a supply demand crunch, you have to leave enough Gaps in the borders, if you like, to allow the best tech talent to to come in and, and fill those roles if needed. When we talk about tech, I think everyone has a tendency to think purely software engineering, but there are a lot of, let's say, more technical type roles that do involve people being in rooms with other people, being on premise. Being at a facility or a factory, for example, and technology covers all of that spectrum broadly. And so you have to still be able to facilitate that. That still needs to be possible. Otherwise, the economies and businesses will suffer.
0: I agree about that. And I think there's also an interesting link between the fact that right now the biggest shortage is a cost in technical talent. But without these great engineers, for example, in Singapore, then a lot of non technical folks lose the opportunity to work with talented engineers, get cross trained, and know what a great engineering team looks like. And so that also reduces the long term entrepreneurial potential, the long term, like 10x training that a lot of people could have. So it's interesting for sure.
1: Yeah.
0: So you think the future is just what? More remote, higher regulation on borders. Is that your thesis for the future?
1: No, my, my thesis is that border regulations will ultimately relax. I think the threshold for markets like Singapore, Hong Kong and others will will go up. I think that's a natural evolution now, but I think it's still going to be enough flexibility for the right talent to come in. In terms of 100% remote, I kind of sit on the fence on this one. I think certain jobs and certain job functions can absolutely be done very effectively 100% remote. I do worry a little bit for those who are slightly earlier in their careers. You can learn a lot from the peers that you are working with and i think in a in-person environment it's a lot easier uh, somewhat to to share experiences and share knowledge and upskill one another and i think if you're coming into the first three four five years of your career as a software engineer in sales whatever you are doing, I think it's really tough to expect somebody to to grow at the speed that say you and I did in the early parts of our career, Jeremy, without that sort of dynamic around us sitting in a bedroom by themselves. I, I just conceptually that doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me. So I think there needs to be a very strong hybrid option. I think employees inevitably have to give the flexibility now, otherwise they're going to lose people, people are talking about this great resignation and that's going to happen over the next quarter and people it's already happening, people leaving jobs Having they're being asked to go back. Now, I think that's maybe step, a step too far. A hybrid model has to be the way forward.
0: So you see the world as hybrid because that's desired by both the employees and the employees have no choice? Is that what you're saying? Or you're saying that's something the that employers want as well?
1: Yeah, I think the employers, they're stuck here. There's growing power amongst their employees to say, look, I don't want to come back into the office. I think companies... Some really don't like that. I think most will get used to that and know and understand how to maintain productivity in in that environment. But I think the other thing that gets forgotten is that a lot of people really can't work from home. To look at Southeast Asia, for example, a lot of people live with big families in relatively small accommodations, and it's all well and good for certain people to be posting on LinkedIn from their penthouse condos about remote is the way forward. But if you are, got three brothers and sisters and it's a noisy house, you want to go into the office, right? You want that space away. You want that ability to collaborate with your colleagues, see your colleagues, and so on. So companies that don't offer any on-premise, I think, will, will struggle in the in those domains as well.
0: That's a very true point, which is that one thing we've noticed is that people working in, for example, Vietnam or Philippines, I've noticed they don't have the infrastructure, especially with the internet speeds, as well as, like you said, the uh, you know quiet work environment, for example, their own rooms to be able to work fully effectively. And so having the choice between being able to come into the office or co-working space to at least get the work done is actually quite important. What's interesting, of course, is that there's also an awkward reality, which is that most companies in Southeast Asia are already hybrid to some extent because of COVID. Yeah. So everyone's already been forced to be remote. <laughs> or like you just said earlier, a huge percentage of their technical talent and also some, to some extent a non-technical talent yeah. is also already remote. And so effectively, even if you come to the office, you're, <laughs> you're effectively working hybrid because you're doing Zoom calls equivalent with other teammates, in other geographies.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And I think that reality is kind of being reflected now in what a lot of the co-working companies are doing. They've they've changed their commercial models. You see a lot of these kind of co-working membership apps springing up where you can have one subscription and you can work across 10 co-working companies and F&B outlets that will open up internet and and, and power plugs to you and, and so on. So I think it's just about giving your employees an option to be outside of the home. They want to be in the home grade. They want to be outside of the home equally great, even if it isn't in you know the traditional head office type environments and central business districts.
0: You know, I love what you just said, which is I think there's a bit of a binary piece, which is either we have a central office where everyone comes to, or you're yeah, at home. But I think there's a concept where hey, you know, this co working or hybrid spaces that you know have a shorter commute, more convenience, but really can give the best of both worlds while also giving the employer less costs. On a fixed cost basis, yeah. What do you think uh, are the trends that founders should be aware of or be thinking about when it comes to talent? Because there's a talent war going on. So, how should founders be thinking about what they need to do better or improve on?
1: well i mean retention basically a huge amount of investment has gone into improving employee retention whether you're looking at you know specific softwares and platforms and technologies that help companies do that or whether you're looking at better you know, soft incentives around healthcare or wellness gym memberships that that sort of stuff and i think that companies good companies anyway whether large or small realize it's it's way more expensive to acquire talent than it is to retain talent and that's going to continue to be a real driver in the market. When, when talent is is in short supply, companies tend to be a little bit more cognizant of of this reality, what's needed to be done.
0: Yeah, retention is right, very key because you spend all this time hiring, searching for this person, waiting for this person to come in, and you have months where this role is not filled and then you don't retain them. And that has not really been a strong conversation topic, to be honest, amongst a lot of founders. I think it's something that's only emerging, I would say, as a topic, versus I think in America where it's been so cannibalistic for a while that retention is known to be a key lever. How do you think a lot of founders should be thinking about retention in terms of improving it on a more tactical basis?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Earlier stage founders put this on the back burner a little bit because they've got other things to focus on. They're trying to raise money. They're trying to build a business. They're trying to make money. They're trying to be profitable. And HR and tenant acquisition kind of does come a little bit later in the journey than than say putting a sales force together or getting partnerships in place. But it, it is really critical because it's even harder to acquire good talent for an early stage company. It's one thing if you've got a an amazing set of VCs on your cap table, you've got a hundred million dollars in the bank, but that's just not typical of the vast majority of businesses that start up. I think people have a very narrow idea of what a startup is. Like a startup is any company that that starts up from nothing. They don't have brand equity in the market. They don't have an employer value proposition. They probably, in the early stages, have the rely on how convincing the founder is. Like how can he get these these individuals to believe in his in his vision and obviously those early employees you can incentivize and should incentivize with shares and and ownership. I think that's really important. The people that come in early stage they have to feel sense of ownership in, in terms of what you're doing because it's it's difficult and it helps um, smooth smoothen over the inevitable bumps that you see beyond that then it really is a case of you know ensuring that your employees feel valued. but it, it it's very hard for for smaller businesses. Big, big companies invest a lot of time and money and teams in this. In, in smaller businesses, it's, it's very hard. And we try to do what we can to help as well.
0: So talking about how you can help, one of the tricky parts for every founder is just like, when should I get an external recruiter versus do my own recruiting versus hire my own recruiter? So that's a very basic question. I guess you might hear a lot of times, but how should a founder think about that?
1: Well, and look, again, it's stage reliant. Right, right in the beginning, I, I do fundamentally believe the the founder or the founders should be the ones doing the recruiting because you don't really have much at that point. You know, as I say, not a lot of brand equity, maybe not a lot of revenue or a lot of customers. So you really have to bring someone on that journey, and they're going to have to believe in you. Once you get past that stage, and you said, say you've got ten employees, and your are you're building from there, then you should be looking at having somebody within the business who can focus on talent acquisition. Right? Like I do. It, it would doesn't make a lot of sense at that stage to be outsourcing things necessarily. You need somebody in HR or talent acquisition at least to process candidates that would come from an external vendor, for example. You can't just go to a vendor and expect them to solve your problems. But I, from there, I would also always recommend that companies do build out some talent acquisition function. For us, in terms of what we do, is we essentially build out a talent acquisition engine that can be bolted on to an existing talent acquisition process and so when you i think companies look at vendors they should be looking at different types of vendors not everyone in in the market is the same and there are actually quite a lot of businesses out there right now that are very creative in trying to lower the cost for startups, for professional recruitment services, or becoming more of an on-demand augmentation of their talent acquisition function. So we're not necessarily any longer talking about these huge 20-25% contingent fees, which are really just unsustainable. And even for a business that's raised a significant amount of money, Jeremy, you're you're in a VC. I'm sure VCs aren't necessarily huge fans of their money being spent on these sorts of fees. So I think there's Always a middle ground. I think vendors can be very useful, but it has to be an internal strategy in place already that, that can be augmented by that external vendor.
0: Yeah, I think that's spot on. Is If the founding team and a team can't sell, why it's a good company to join? No amount of vendors can be able to support you. But the truth is, if you are able to grow to a certain stage, figure out product market fit, build an initial team, raise some initial capital, probably you have a founder that has some ability to sell and close and get talent already. So it's a matter of finding the vendor at the right stage. That being said, how do you find the right vendor? Because obviously hiring an in-house recruiter is too expensive, especially when your core goes is to find an engineer. Or find a COO or find a great sales rep. So, you know, you start with an external vendor, but how do you tell who's a good one or who's effectively shit? Because <laughs> they both claim to be 10x, they both claim to be good, they both claim to be responsive, they both respond to your email, WhatsApp pretty quick. So, how do you tell between a good one versus a less good one?
1: Yeah. Well, to address your first point, firstly, the finding good talent acquisition people is becoming increasingly difficult. So like, even if a company, a startup does want to go with a 100% in-house talent acquisition strategy, it is actually quite difficult to staff that right now. The salaries in that function are going up quite quickly, here in Singapore in particular, and they may not necessarily have enough hiring needs to justify in the inflexibility of that headcount on their books. It might feel for early stage founders like a bit of a luxury thing to have. So if you are to go outside I think my honest answer is it's very difficult for, for businesses to determine which vendor is going to be uh, best for them. I think it depends on the company you are. If, if we are talking now in the context of startups, I think you need to be looking for partners that work primarily with startups. I think some of the really, really large global recruitment businesses, I think a few of them do it well, but ultimately they're recruiting high volume for enterprise businesses that have huge amounts of brand equity that have sorted out their employee value proposition can pay top market rate for salaries. That doesn't necessarily translate that startup hiring needs are very unique. And if a vendor has had track record successfully hiring for startups, that's really what you should be looking for because it's a different job on so many levels.
0: How do you tell the difference? Back in person, I always tell people tech recruiters and sales reps both have awesome handshakes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You got to feel all that trust and warmth and camaraderie. How do you know if someone's good or not? I mean, I guess in my brain, like testimonials or customer references might be one way to tell. Are there any other ways that you think would be a good way to tell the difference?
1: Yeah, I think uh, obviously testimonials and customer referrals are very important, right? I think there's not not much online that compares recruitment uh, businesses, actually. For pretty much everything else, you can go online and you can see hundreds of reviews and uh, five or six different platforms that do that, and that's not really available. So that might be quite a good idea for somebody. Actually, I think somebody is working on that somewhere, if I recall. So I think the answer is maybe to look at the model and then try to derive what motivation comes from that model. So if you're looking at a, a, a partner that purely does contingent recruitment and charges 25%, essentially the, that candidate is their commodity and it is their job to sell that candidate into your business. And not necessarily; It could be the best candidate potentially in the market, but is it the right candidate for your business? Right? And that's extremely important for startups. Right. Do they have the right motivation culture of it and so on? If you look at models that maybe remove the incentive to oversell candidates and ones that are more aligned to them becoming a partner to your business and growing with you and sharing your experience and augmenting your strategy out in the market on your behalf as a partner without it charging you exorbitant fees or in fact not charging you any fees at all, then I think that kind of shows a different type of intent, if that makes sense. So there, were, I think there are some signals... I think the overall answer is, do your research. But it is difficult. So
0: how does a startup have a good ramp or onboarding process with the recruiter? So they pick one or two on a trial basis. How should they prepare to make sure that it's a successful engagement rather than a less productive one where both sides are unhappy?
1: Again, difficult question. I think pick one that is prepared to be flexible enough to be your partner from day one that kind of try before you buy. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a a free proof of concept. But I do think recruitment is most effective between end customer and vendor when there is an opportunity for each party to learn one another's ways of doing things and and methodologies. So many hiring managers have expectations, for example, that are fully misaligned with market realities, right? Any recruiter will tell you that. You get these astronaut-type JDs, which just aren't recruitable. And that's because the hiring manager doesn't have the access to the data in the market, for example. So I think that's an easy way for a lot of recruitment companies to start building relationships is to say, hey, look, this is what we know about the candidate market. This is the data that we have. And that we're going to start advising you a little bit more to make your JDs more recruitable based on, on what we know and what you don't know. And that doesn't have to be very expensive. It doesn't have to be committal. It can be a good way. And then once hiring managers and recruiters and HR teams and recruiters get to know one another, And the recruiters start to understand, hey, how do they work and and what kind of their ideal candidate looks like, the outcomes are inevitably going to be better. It's very tempting for companies to, hey, let me try seven contingent recruiters. I'm not going to pay them anything. If I get a win, I get a win. I have to pay through the year when I do, but I haven't lost anything up front. So that's my way of trying. And I think that's not necessarily smart all the time. I think getting partnerships in place is going to be more viable and, and have better outcomes in the mid, mid to long term.
0: Awesome, Dom, for sharing so much knowledge. Could you share with us a time that you have been brave?
1: Yeah, I think COVID, really. And I, and I think many out there are far braver than I. But the reality is, for our business and many in our sector, when the hiring freezes came in in March, April last year with the onset of COVID, where there's still a lot of uncertainty, people didn't really know how serious this was going to be, how it was going to look. And uh, companies went into conservative mode and our revenue dropped hugely and very, very quickly. And so by that point, I'd already built a very, what I would say, an extremely strong team, a team that I'm incredibly proud of. It was a question of, do we keep them, right? And I think this is a question that founders go through at some point in their in their careers, for sure. So it was then the question: How long do we keep them? How long do we wait for the market to turn? Like, you we didn't we're not we're a bootstrap company. We don't have a lot of VC money in the bank that we can burn. So it was about making a judgment call based on what we could see and the signals we can take from the market uh, this is going to be 6 months or it's going to be 9 months and we have enough affordability to keep our team because replacing that team as we covered earlier in our discussion is extraordinarily hard right like a huge amount of my time early on went into getting people on board and and selling them my vision and that's not sustainable when a business is is growing so i think the bravery came in the, in the way of just okay let's hold and it got quite close, <laughs> but uh, but ultimately it did come back in time, and we were able to continue and, and actually grow and thrive from then. And I'm very pleased. And so, I don't think it's bravery in the in in the traditional sense, but I, I think it's more a reflection of the type of risks that CEOs have to be prepared to take. It's not brave into I'm facing a lion or saving someone from a train track. I don't see it that way at all. I think it's just about holding course. And just having enough balls, I guess, to take that risk when others wouldn't and would have gone a different way.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dom, for coming on the show. I'd love to paraphrase the three big themes that I got from this conversation. The first, of course, is thanks so much for sharing your expertise on what I call the tech-talent war across the region, where there's obviously a dynamic between technical versus non-technical talent, company versus company, and actually country versus country. And so I think there's an interesting play where we see this shaping up, not just over the short term in terms of COVID and pandemic dynamics, but also the medium to long term over immigration, and other dynamics. The second thing that I really did enjoy was you sharing a lot about hybrid versus remote. I thought it was an interesting discussion about how we see preferences of employees versus employees are shaping up and how it interplays with local hiring and employment decisions. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing and your knowledge around how to select the right recruiter, right? Whether that's you or not. But I think that was a lot of good advice about making sure that you really nail and get the references, get an understanding on how they recruit and who they're recruiting historically for, and making sure that there's a setup for a good working relationship. Especially making sure that you already have a good strategy up front, as well as a good retention strategy in play as well. So thank you so much, Dom, for coming on the show.
1: Really enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast share this episode with friends and colleagues sign up at www.jeremyour.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum stay well and stay brave